So you'll remember that Canto 13 had ended with Sapir's frank assessment of her life and how she was now working through her former envy um, to now see not her own life clearly, but also the life of the city, Siena, where she was from. And Canto 14 picks up that sense that we're now thinking more about city-states, whole countries. Um, it amplifies and takes on an almost civilizational aspect. And that makes some sense in these vertical readings of the Divine Comedy, because the corresponding canto in the Inferno had featured the old man of Crete. Do you remember that statue, great figure, under Mount Vesuvius, who had a splendid head of gold and a splendid chest of silver, and yet was leaning on the crumbling terracotta foot. Um, it was an image of a civilization that was relying on its least valuable parts and had even forgotten that it had gold and silver that had been its wellspring. Well, now here in Canto 14 of the Purgatory, a similar civilizational lament starts to unfold. Um, it develops that analysis from the Inferno um, in the souls that Dante meets now. It actually opens with two souls, people we haven't met before, speaking to each other. And they're asking about someone they know must be walking around with his eyes open because he's roaming around the mountain. They've also heard that he's breathing from the conversation with Sapir, so they know he's alive. And they're filled with awe. In parenthesis, you might wonder whether they'd be filled with envy because their eyes have been sewn shut. But they actually show wonder about this and say to Dante that nothing like a living soul ascending Mount Purgatory has ever been known before. Um, it's a moment that speaks about the state of their own souls, that they're open and inquisitive rather than envious and possessive. But it also signals, I think, for us, something of what Dante feels this Divine Comedy is really about. This is about something new happening. Um, it's about, at the very least, a renewal of his civilization, given we're in this civilization and degeneracy theme now. Um, and it makes me wonder, I'll do no more than wonder at this stage, since we want to see what's going to unfold as we ascend Mount Purgatory and move into the paradise. But nonetheless, for me, it sets up the question, is Dante actually embarking on a completely new dispensation, certainly a new chapter within Christianity, in the way that, as we've already seen, he's starting to stress that we need to move on from what had been sort of given particularly to church forms of Christianity, uh, move on to a newer understanding, um, open our eyes, it might be said, on this terrace of purgatory, to a, a fresh unfolding of these deep truths. Because the implication would be here and now that 
what had been given has become corrupt, is falling apart, is no longer a wellspring, is no longer silver and gold, but has become crumbling terracotta. The two souls ask Dante who he is, and Dante replies modestly by not actually speaking his name because he says that his name has no fame, so they won't know who he is. Um, I mean, that might literally have been true um, because it seems to say they're not Florentines. But again, there's a kind of sense, I think, in Dante's not Dante's saying that he's not yet famous. There's an implication that, you know, one day he will be well known. And I wonder whether that's partly because he is beginning to sense the profundity of this journey. You know, maybe this is not just about the purification of his own soul, um, him starting to deal, for example, with his own pride, um, as we've seen in Canto 13, but that something much bigger is going to be revealed to him um, if he can be ready to receive it, if his poetry is up to it, um, if he can become a channel for new divine glory. That, to my mind, is hinted in this moment as well. Um, but he does tell them where he's from, but again, without revealing the name of the Arno, he describes um, the source of the Arno, um, and they pick that up. Um, there's a lot of withholding of names. Um, it's sort of, I think, for Dante the poet, is a way of saying, look, really pay attention to what's going on here. Don't just, as it were, reel it off like an old liturgy. Um, ask yourself, you know, what is really at stake in what you're about to hear? And the implication that Dante is from the banks of the Arno launches the first soul who um, spoke to Dante, um, the first of these two who were conversing, into a long, long litany of how various cities and inhabitants, um, the very passage of the Arno has become a roll call of degeneracy, of corruption, of fraud. Um, I think it might have read to Dante's original readers a bit like, say, a review of the year on the news might hear to us now. You know, we just hear one war after another, one tale of exploitation after another, one account of failed politics after another, one expression of narcissism, of greed, of envy after another. So it creates um, a tale of sorrow. It's also worth noting the kinds of suggestions that begin to get made about how this awful situation might have come about. Um, the soul doesn't just name names, but also begins to describe, insofar as he can see and tell, you know, what has gone wrong. He says that these cities have become places where virtue is loathed. Um, you know, people see virtue and run in the opposite direction towards vice. Um, he says, was it a curse on these places or was it just human corruption? He's wondered whether the very life of these cities has become perverted, has become demonic. Um, they, you know, couldn't even save themselves if they wanted to, if they realised that they had become corrupt. Um, he says, was it as if their human nature had become transformed, much like Circe could transform Ulysses' sailors into pigs? 
he moves along the river in his mind's eye and of course that means that it's falling and uses that an analogy to ask you know how further can the inhabitants of these city-states how far can they fall um, it seems almost incomprehensible that things can fall so far he then has a moment of inspiration um, it's an interesting moment of course these prophecies you get a bit of a hint that what has happened here now is that even as he sees the degeneracy before him, he gets a glimpse of the divine mind. Um, he's in line, you might say, with God's sight, um, even in his lament. Um, and what he sees is another horror, because he turns to the second soul that he had been conversing. Remember, the names haven't been revealed yet. Um, and says, you know, I see your grandson. And he is now like a wolf moving across the, the countryside, murderously slaying people and losing his honour. Um, just sort of mindless, needless, um, unmotivated even killings, like a wolf gone astray. Um, he says that he sees him in a woods and it's like the woods themselves have become polluted. Um, he said that it's a wood that's now going to take a thousand years to degenerate. Um, a kind of ecological reference that speaks even more powerfully to us now. The soul pauses in his great lament and Dante says that he now was desperate to know their names and he begs them to tell him. Um, the one who's been speaking says, you know, well, you wouldn't tell us your name, but look, in a spirit of generosity, not envy, I'll tell you who we are. It turns out that the one who's been speaking is called Guido del Duca, um, and he is a Ghibelline, and the soul that he's huddled up against um, here on the Second Terrace of Purgatory um, is Rinieri de Calbali, and he is a Guelph. So a Ghibelline and a Guelph um, supporting each other, sharing this sorrow, um, now would have spoken, of course, very powerfully to Dante. Enemies are now united in their vision of what they see. And um, Guido then says something about why he here is here on the terrace of the envious. Um, and much like Sapir, actually, um, he had degenerated himself so much that he loved to see the suffering of others. Um, he said um, that he loved to accumulate um, at other people's expense. So he's sort of adding accumulation to the list of corruptions and degeneracies that in his own life he got caught up in. And he also remarks to humanity in general and the vision now of um, how this is a lament for all humankind, not just Italy and its civil wars. Um, he adds, why, O oh humanity, do you pursue ways which are so clearly unsustainable? Why do you not go for those things in life which can be shared? Um, that the more that they're enjoyed in life, the greater they come, the more they grow. Um, instead, you go for the, the methods of extraction, um, the things that are going to run out, the things that if you consume are going to leave others in poverty. Um, this sets up a whole set of questions really about what this all means and Dante the poet doesn't fully understand at this point what is really being spoken about. Um, it carries resonances for him, it carries obvious resonances for us 
they're going to pick up these themes in subsequent cantos. But in this moment, Guido then launches into a different kind of lament, um, a shorter one, again, a sort of roll call of names. But these are lists of their ancestors who were noble, who were virtuous, who were, you might say, tapped into the civilization's wellsprings and so lived good and glorious lives. And they were the exemplars um, of um, the life of virtue, which is now so self-evidently being lost. So it serves as a contrast because these people knew what to live for, how to orientate their lives, both personally and socially. It comes to an end, um, the canto, with Dante and Virgil moving on. Um, Dante says that he knew that um, these two souls, uh, Rinieri and Guido, would have heard them moving on. Um, he also trusts that if Virgil and Dante were moving in the wrong direction, they would have called out to tell them how um, they must continue to make the next ascent of the, the next stage of the ascent on the mountain. Um, so it, it ends with a, an expression of trust um, between Virgil and Dante and Rinieri and Guido. Um, this is Mount Purgatory where people are learning from their mistakes. And as they move away, Dante is momentarily filled with fear again. And because two voices screech through the air like a crack of thunder, um, you remember that spirits had flown past them at the beginning of their um, emergence onto um, the terrace of the envious. And these are kind of counterpart um, spirits, um, this time as warnings, as expressions of really terrible envy, as opposed to excessive generosity, which they'd heard before. And they realise that they're hearing the voice of Cain, who, of course, slew his brother Abel. And they also hear the voice of Aglorus. Uh, she is a mythological figure who became very envious of her sister, who was admired by a god, um, and the god turned her into stone as a result. Um, her life froze, um, became uh, stony and still because of her envy, you might say. And the canto finishes with Virgil offering sort of his sense of things, you might say. Interestingly, he does so in a voice that sounds quite like a psalm. Um, you know, so I think this is part of his learning about the new way too, and the new dispensational possibilities at least as well. And he too offers a kind of lament on humanity's state. Um, he says, look, there's so many warnings about what envy does, much like the voices that they just heard screech past them. Um, it's all around for us to see. Our very lives suffer, you might say. And yet, human beings, you look only right in front of you, down at the ground, not even looking at the damage that's going on around in the world. Um, and you certainly, he says, don't look up to the wheeling stars where God's message shines there all day, every day, all night, every night, if only you could raise your eyes to discern and to follow.